Hi everyone, welcome to The Life She Wrote. My name is Emily and I am your host. I am the creator of thelifesherote.com where I write about faith deconstruction, religious trauma, and other ex-evangelical related topics. This week we are diving into part three of this series on purity culture. When I decided to do this series, um, I A, had no idea I was going to start a podcast, and B, I think I underestimated how much I haven't grieved. Let me explain what I mean by that. Evangelicals, on the whole, are not good at lament. Somehow, along the way, they forgot that grief is necessary. They've squashed it down into three sentences and a greeting card. They write whole worship songs about trading their sorrows and how joy comes in the morning. But there's very little space given for grief and lament. For grieving what has been lost. There's even often shame and wallowing, as if grief is something you can just snap out of. And often the very thing you grieve is even judged of its worthiness. You're told awful things like, everything happens for a reason, or God works in mysterious ways. I don't want to get too far off track, but the reason I point this out is because it's no wonder that after we leave that environment, a lot of us have no idea how to grieve. Some of us spent our whole lives knowing some Bible verse that could explain away our pain, and therefore we had no right to feel it. For me personally, when I first started therapy, I remembered telling my therapist that I was angry about all the lost time. I would see these uh, much younger adults than me um, online, deconstructing, uh, sometimes even coming out and living their best queer lives, and healing from uh, the trauma as, you know, a 22 or 23-year-old, their whole lives ahead of them. And here I was, I'd spent all of my 20s just waiting to become a wife and a mother because I believed the lie that it was all I could or should be. But then I was also racked with guilt, overwhelming guilt, because I had convinced myself that if I was allowed to grieve the past I didn't have, it somehow meant I wasn't grateful for the life I have now, which is a partner that loves me a lot and two beautiful kids who mostly make me feel like I'm slowly losing my mind. It wasn't until she told me, no, (laughs) that's not how it works. There's not some imaginary rule that says your grief or anger makes you ungrateful. And that's when I finally started to let myself feel what I needed to feel instead of beating myself up over and over. Now, I still haven't tackled all the whys behind that, but, you know, I like to think that part of it might come from singing songs like, give thanks with a grateful heart because of Jesus and what he's done. Let the weak say I'm strong. Let the poor say I'm rich because of what the Lord has done for us. You know, only since I was old enough to talk. Part of this process of learning to trust ourselves and our bodies is allowing our bodies to feel what they feel. And more often than not, what they feel is betrayal. I mean, if you think about all the Bible stories that we tell little kids in Sunday school, stories like Noah's Ark and David and Goliath, all these stories I grew up hearing when we get older in high school or college and we start finding out 
Those same Bible stories have completely different meaning and context and plots, and some people just accepted these differences and had a laugh about how wildly inappropriate these stories are for kids and moved on as their, in their life as a Christian. But others felt betrayed. They felt like they'd been lied to their whole lives. And for a time, I was definitely in that latter group. This feeling of betrayal is probably one of the most universal emotions that I've experienced from uh, former evangelicals, something that we all seem to share. Betrayed by their pastors, their parents, mentors, youth leaders, friends, family, teachers, and the number of different ways in which we're betrayed are just as numerous. And that betrayal we feel is loss. Loss of time, loss of energy, experiences, love, trust. And those losses should be grieved. We owe that to our younger selves. There's a song by Pink that I feel like plays in my head all the time right now because the lyrics sum up so well what a lot of ex-evangelicals are feeling, especially when they first walk away from the only life they ever knew. Um, I had probably heard it a lot on the radio before, but had never really paid attention to the lyrics. And it wasn't until a couple months ago when it came on and I happened to be in the car uh, driving alone. (laughs) So, you know, with children in a pandemic, that's basically, I was on vacation. Okay, I was on vacation in my car and this song came on and I actually was able to listen to every single word and I was stunned. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. It was so accurately describing uh, my own experience and so many of the experiences that I've listened to over the last four years. And uh, it was it felt so accurate, I began to wonder if Pink herself had once deconstructed evangelical Christianity. Um, she did not, but it was on her 2017 album, Beautiful Trauma. So make of that what you will. The song I'm talking about is called What About Us? And if you've never heard it, you should go search for it on Spotify and listen to the whole thing. But this particular part kind of hits me hard every time. And so I'm just going to read these few lines from the second verse. We are children that need to be loved. We were willing. We came when you called. But man, you fooled us. Enough is enough. What about us? What about all the times you said you had the answers? What about us? What about all the broken happy ever afters? What about us? When I hear what about all the broken happy ever afters, I think about All the marriages that ended are the ones that never happened because of the lies taught by purity culture. I think about the sexual abuse survivors who were abused in church or by someone from their church or by a family member who was protected by their church. When I hear, what about all the times you said you had the answers? I think of all of us who were told if we just followed the rules, we'd be guaranteed this magical, perfect marriage. I think of Alyssa from the story at the end of my last episode who spent years following all the rules only to be told she wasn't allowed to love her future husband too much or she would get distracted. 
so much of what we were taught within purity culture revolved around this concept of abstinence only until marriage. And much like Alyssa's story, if you haven't listened to episode two, I read her submission at the end. We were constantly afraid of messing up our life. Which is ironic, considering none of the messing up was our doing. It was this indoctrination that taught us to be afraid. We were taught that the only way to ensure we had a marriage that was pleasing to God was to remain sexually pure, meaning abstinent, until our wedding night. The fear of having a failed or doomed marriage prompted some extreme dating practices. In some cases, couples uh, would not even kiss until the end of their wedding ceremony. You know, the part where the officiant says, I now pronounce you man and wife, you may kiss the bride. In some cases, strict rules about courting were encouraged, even taking chaperones with them on dates. And I've seen this before on like the reality TV shows about quiverful families. The common thread that kept us in control, that kept some of us from straying too far, was shame. It's a nasty motivator, but it motivates nonetheless. We talked about shame a lot last episode, about how all modesty really does is teach women to be ashamed of their bodies. And now... In this episode, we were talking about how when we were taught that before marriage, any sexual thoughts were even sinful, because those thoughts would lead to actions, and those actions could destroy our future. And there were a lot of different analogies used to demonstrate the shame you would bring upon yourself by engaging in sexual activity before you were married. And these analogies were meant to convince girls that no respectable godly man would want them if they were not virgins. I'm sure you've heard some iteration of your sexuality being like a flower. And every time you performed a sexual act with someone, you were giving a petal away. And if you don't have any petals left before you get married, your future husband won't want you because you're just handing him this sad, broken flower. There's also the really horrible chewed gum analogy, implying that if you had sex with multiple partners, you were like chewed gum that no one wants. (laughs) It's so awful. None of those things are true, everyone. I hope you all know that by now. But here in the United States, this particular obsession with sexual purity, the the root of all this shame that we're talking about, and this doctrine that all of these tactics were born out of in this particular era uh, of white evangelical subculture in the early 90s, because that's kind of what we're talking about here, is when it all first really ramped up. It can also be ascribed to something uh, in addition to patriarchy, and that is white supremacy. At the end of the last episode, I mentioned a recent article along with an episode of the podcast Straight White American Jesus, where the author of the article, Dr. Audrey Claire Farley, was interviewed. So if you check those out or read my blog post this week, then you know where this is going. But for the rest of you, Prepare yourselves. That article was about the link between the founder of Focus on the Family, Dr. James Dobson, and eugenics. Before launching his own Christian media empire, he trained as a psychologist under eugenicist and atheist Paul Popineau. 
Now I'll pause here for a second before I go on and I'll be honest with you. I dropped out of college before I ever had the chance to take a college science class. And in high school, I took ag science. That's agricultural science for those of you who didn't grow up in a farming town. Uh, So I did not know what eugenics was until much later in life. I mean, it might have been mentioned in a history class in high school, but I definitely uh, had forgotten about it. So if you don't either, and you're really not sure what the meaning of the word is, I'll give you a brief definition. Uh, In the article, which I'll link again in the episode notes, uh, it gives the following definition. It was a program to improve the quality of the human population, which gained popularity in the early 20th century when more than 30 states enacted laws authorizing the forced sterilization of the unfit, meaning poor, disabled, immigrant, and otherwise socially undesirable persons. Yes. Um, Laws. 30 states enacting laws authorizing the forced sterilization of anyone who was poor, disabled, immigrant, and otherwise socially undesirable persons. Pretty horrific. By the time James Dobson had gone to work for Popinot, Popinot was focused more on what they call positive eugenics. And yes, I'm aware that sounds like an oxymoron. But the meaning of that is the purpose of his work at that time wasn't focused so much on uh, the sterilization, forced sterilizations. Uh, It was on the following. Um, And uh, this will also be in my citations at the end, and it's also in the blog post for this week. Quote, to improve marital harmony and remove what he thought to be obstacles to white reproduction, such as rape, masturbation, pornography, female frigidity, and feminist yearnings. Over the next several decades, Popeno counseled white couples on the importance of strict gender norms and same-race marriage. Training psychologists, clergymen, many Baptist and Mormon, and youth group leaders, his new allies in the Racial Betterment Project, to do the same. According to Hendy Livedahl-Stevens, author of Family Matters, James Dobson, and Focus on the Family's Crusade for the Christian Home, he instructed counselors to use heredity and interpersonal compatibility as codes for race, especially when his views on race began to go out of vogue. End quote. If you notice, some of the things in that list sound very familiar to what evangelicals and the Christian right still refer to this day as family values. We often hear them rail against pornography and masturbation and feminism and strict gender norms. And of course, who is one of the most famous voices in that conversation, perhaps one of the most influential white evangelicals of the last several decades, Dr. James Dobson. And by the time we get to the early 90s, right, so we're kind of fast forwarding now up to where we are, Dobson's books uh, were already in the homes of millions of white evangelicals and conservative Catholics and many more. He was, I would even say, at the height of his popularity. He was in every home in America at some point. I mean, that's how it felt. He was everywhere. And I guarantee you, the percentage of Christian parents who knew that these ideas did not just come from the Bible was very small. It was not trendy for the average evangelical Christian to own a concordance and read theology books in their spare time. And until the ESV Bible came along later on, most Americans, uh, American Christians, had just like their NIV, 
or their NIV study Bible, and then whatever their pastors preached on Sundays. And yes, of course, there were all of those books by Christian authors and Bible studies written, but those weren't questioned. I mean, if it was sold in the local 90,000 square foot Berean or Family Christian or Lifeway store, it was as good as gold. What I'm saying here is you got to remember the internet was still in its infancy. People couldn't just go online and research uh, the history of these authors. You know, if it was, if it had the stamp of endorsement being sold in the Christian bookstore and the pastor was endorsing it, your pastor was endorsing it from the pulpit, then that was it. End of discussion. I'm telling you all this in case you happen to be listening and you were a parent in the 80s or 90s living and breathing by Dobson and you feel a little sick to your stomach right now. And I say that as a parent that I know what it feels like to be terrified of your child feeling pain or being the cause of it. And you just might need someone to tell you right now that you're not the absolute worst. For the rest of you, I want to draw some more parallels here. What Popino called interpersonal compatibility, Dobson and company may have called for couples to be, say, equally yoked. That's probably a term that you're familiar with if you grew up in this era. The agonizing fear of no one wanting you if you already had sex with someone else before you got married. Those lies were spread to prevent white women from dating non-white men thus diluting the genetic pool, if you will. It had absolutely nothing to do with any kind of psychological or emotional harm because real science tells us that's not accurate. And if you want more information on that, you can see the citations in my blog post this week. Basically, Dobson took racist junk science and carefully found scripture to reinforce his racism and junk science and called it biblical family values. Back at the beginning of April, pastor and author Tim Keller went on a month-long Twitter rant defending his idea of a biblical sexual ethic, which he claimed was founded on his belief that sex outside of marriage is, quote, dehumanizing, unquote. It went on for what felt like an eternity. A bunch of us wrote about it. I'll put some links in the episode notes if you're curious. But Thinking about that now, (laughs) after everything I just told you, it really takes on a whole new meaning. At the time, I responded to Keller by explaining that denying the lived realities of millions of people who have had healthy, fulfilling sexual relationships outside of marriage or monogamy is what is actually dehumanizing. But now... (laughs) Knowing how all of this started, knowing that the, the godfather of Christian parenting and marriaging, marriage books, a, a co-conspirator behind the most misogynist, bigoted translation of the Bible ever, the ESV, was a blatant racist himself who believed in eliminating anyone non-white and able-bodied from the human race? Talk about dehumanizing. And that's your evangelical proof? biblical sexual ethic? I can't think of anything more dehumanizing than the practice of eugenics in the name of white supremacy and Jesus Christ of Nazareth. 
my hope from this episode, as dark as this topic is, is that you find healing and maybe a little vindication. That every one of you who have denied your own natural human instincts because of fear and shame put on you by this toxic racist doctrine that you can use this knowledge to unlearn it all. And in doing so, learn to trust your body. As my therapist once said, we're not born with shame. It is put on you. It is an idea imprinted on you, and it can control you, just like any other form of abuse, if you don't root out the cause and find new ways to talk to yourself and your body. Like in other weeks, I wanted to read some stories from others who've experienced this unique, shared (laughs) era that is purity culture. Some have asked to stay anonymous, and others have provided a way to reach out if you can relate, and all relevant links will be in the episode notes. Here we go. The first story is from Ford Ebling. He's a Church 2 survivor. His pronouns are he, him. He identifies as error romantic, and you can find him on Twitter as at Ford underscore Ebling, and I will put that in the notes. And this is Ford's story. I think one of the biggest ways that it affected me was my ability to just have a normal relationship. I had a girlfriend through the last half of high school, and I felt so much guilt and shame around something as simple as cuddling on the couch. And I remember just being so determined to get her to come with me to this little purity culture conference they put on at my old church. They put it on once a year, and I remember it affected me so much the first time I went to it, but I wasn't in a relationship then so I couldn't really apply it. But I wanted our relationship to work, which was ridiculous because I was 17 and she was 16. And I tried to get her to come with me. In any case, I was really disappointed in the conference because the speaker and the little activities were all pretty much exactly the same. And I didn't feel like it gave me any answers. I just spent so much time feeling guilty and hating myself, even though we didn't really do anything, just normal teenager stuff. And of course, back then I had no idea I was aeroromantic, so I spent eight years in that relationship not knowing how to even ask if a single long-term partner was something I even wanted, because the conditioning persisted even though I more or less stopped going to church once I went to college. I think as young men, you're very much groomed to perpetuate a lot of the harmful shit in purity culture, which I consider a kind of abuse in itself. But it is very different, but it is of course a very different dynamic. I wouldn't say most men in evangelical circles become outright abusers, but they're conditioned to ignore it at the very least. Thank you, Ford, for that story. I'm sure it is uh, very relatable for a lot of people. Uh, The next story is uh, from someone who's staying anonymous, Uh, but it sounds like her pronouns are she, her, based on her story. I grew up in a small town in Canada in the 80s, a bit before purity culture, but I think we had that down before it was cool. I was just, it was just assumed that if you were a good girl, you would be a virgin on your wedding night. I don't actually remember it being taught, it was just a thing. 
Now, I was always a bit of a closet feminist and shit disturber, but tried to keep it hidden. But I had a real fear that if I slept with my non-Christian boyfriend and got pregnant, that my dad, a hunter, would kill him. Seriously. Now, note that I was rebellious enough to date a non-Christian, and we pushed my line of what constituted not having sex to as close a line as anyone could push it. I eventually broke up with him as he pulled me down, quote-unquote, and I decided I could never save him. Fast forward a couple years, and a good Christian boyfriend that I had corrupted, we began pushing the boundary of what we could do, and uh, I, but so I could still stay a virgin on our wedding night. Well, the wedding night came, and I went from enjoying the forbidden pleasures to drying up completely in one day. I spent the next 29 years without ever having an orgasm. It wasn't until I started to deconstruct and decided to go to a sex therapist that I actually had my first orgasm. I'm surprised my husband stuck with me this long, as it wasn't fun for either him or me. But as he was, too, he was also a virgin on our wedding night, he didn't really know what he was missing either, other than it had to be better than what we were doing and having. Fast forward three years, and sex is amazing. I still struggle with forgetting that I enjoy sex and that I don't have to just tolerate it what is happening to me. How shitty that I spent 29 plus years denying myself without even knowing what I was doing. Y'all, that story (laughs) is... Wow. (laughs) And... And I wanted to read it anyway, even though, uh, you know, she mentioned in the beginning that this was long before even what we considered purity culture here in the United States. Um, And she grew up in a Mennonite community. But it just goes to show that these ideas surrounding sexual purity uh, had been harming people for much longer than when we experienced it, for one. But second of all, I just think it's a good example of the incredible harm that abstinence-only sex ed does to people. I mean, 29 years without being, to ha- without being able to have an orgasm, like, it's just, you know, I mean, it's one thing if, you know, the way you identify sexually, you know, you don't need that or you don't want it, but wanting it and wishing you could have it and struggling for that long, I mean, I can't even imagine but this is what abstinence only until marriage programs and education and ideology does to people. This last story, uh, this person is anonymous, but they have an anonymous Twitter account that you can follow him on, which is at the snarky gent on Twitter. Um, and I'll put that in the links. He says, I grew up in an evangelical homeschooling family. I was lucky in avoiding a lot of the harms that come with that, but my parents never educated us on sexuality. Officially, my sex ed was listening to a thing called Passport to Purity at 16. My real sex ed came from the internet, for better or worse. At 20, I attended a leadership school that pushed the incredibly rigid and inflexible courtship approach to relationships. They called it, quote, intentional dating, end quote. For men, they also had us do accountability every week, where we would confess everything, even the slightest sexual desire or thought. They loved to paraphrase Paul, saying, beat our bodies and make them our slaves, as the standard for how intensely we should repress our desires and feelings. Thanks to that, 
I believed if I couldn't cull all sexual desire from my mind, I wasn't worthy of even trying to date. Even after I left at 22 and began deconstructing, I didn't realize how much of these ideas had shaped me. Five years later, I read Dr. Tina Shermer Sellers' work on shame and purity culture and realized how harmful it had been. I started with therapy, and I'm working towards being comfortable dating and expressing desire and affection, but it's in no way simple for me. I, yeah, those accountability partners, I, that's one of the biggest, uh, biggest harms I hear about when I, uh, hear the perspective of, uh, men or those who identified as male, uh, when they were going through, uh, purity culture and through that era is just that idea that every single a sexual thought was sinful and unnatural and had to be cast out of you. <laughs> it just does so much harm. I don't... Uh, thank you for submitting that story. Thank you, everyone, for your stories. And uh, for those who were identified with ways to reach them, I'll put that information uh, in the episode notes. So if you identified with that story um, and need to reach out, you can. But this is where I'm going to leave you for this week. I want to thank you all for listening and reading the blog and following along. Uh, Next week, we'll be talking about gender roles as they relate to purity culture and evangelicalism at large. So you can be sure we'll hit topics like toxic masculinity and Proverbs 31. Should be a great time had by all. (laughs) If you haven't yet, uh, go check out the article from Dr. Audrey Claire Farley and her interview on Straight White American Jesus. Uh, The links will be in the episode notes. Uh, Also, most of those quotes I read in this episode were in the blog post from this week, so if you haven't read it yet, you can check it out at thelifeshewrote.com. Something to take with you this week. Grief is not linear, and neither is deconstruction. Take the time to grieve what you need to grieve, and celebrate vindication every time you get the chance. May each and every one of you be freed from the shame that was put on you. Until next time.